Well, good morning, everyone out there in Facebook land and everywhere here in our room. Can I give you, can you guys help me out and just let everybody know you're here? Yeah. Woo! We got to let you know out there in Facebook land. Let me call it Facebook land because that's what I want to call it. But um, we want you to know that we are here. We are worshiping the Lord and we welcome you to join us as we are in the room in this building because we are worshiping, gathering together, even with you who's out there uh, watching via Facebook Live. So uh, we just welcome you this morning. We have a new series this morning entitled Collide. Now, some of you might think, okay, where are we going with the word collide? Well, let me just share a couple of things with you. Um, first of all, as we think of collide, we're thinking about um, trying to make sure that uh, we understand the process of it. Now, we can't show the videos this morning that I showed in the 9 a.m., so I'll have to disable those guys up there. But um, what we want to make sure is you helped you understand that I had some videos from this morning that showed specifically how a star in, in the skies and how it works and how if, if you see a big star and its mass and, and how it sits on itself and sometimes when it does, it's, it's a star that when we understand the existence of a star, we know that it pushes out nuclear energy while gravity is pushing in against the star. So you have the energy of the star trying to come out as the gravity is pushing against it. And this balance keeps the star alive. Yet when a star runs out of atoms to fuse, similar to a car running out of fuel, this star reaches its end. And when it does, there's a breaking point. And it can result in two ways. The core can get so heavy that it can't withstand the gravitational force and the core collapses which then results in a giant explosion, as we would know as a supernova. But it also, when you're thinking too, is that the star could also, if two stars are orbiting around each other and they get too close, that also can create a supernova, an explosion, because the two stars collide together. So the idea of it is that in one star, you have where they're too close and collide, and another star, which the mass of that star is even 10, 20, or 50 times more mass than the sun, because the sun is considered a star, when it runs out of that fuel, that nuclear fuel, it collapses, but it collapses within. See, I, the idea of collapse is the word collide in the Latin, and it can do two things. When a star comes together and it, and it, and it collides or has a collision of a supernova, it could create something beautiful or destructive. See, when a, when, a, when a star collides within itself, it could actually create a, a black hole, and it could create that destructive force. But it also can create a beautiful picture. So when you think about explosions, you wouldn't think of something that's pretty. But yet, when you think about a star, when it comes, it becomes even greater, like a supernova then it starts to do some work. So when you think of collision, you don't think of something that you're going to do in colliding, like coming together would be a good thing. Like if you hit in a collision with a car, it's not usually a good thing. But with here, we're talking about a star because in likening to our faith, how does that work? And what does that mean? Well, when faith collides, 
with something, should it be a supernova that occurs? So when we think about fear, and we're thinking specifically about all kinds of fear, what happens when our faith collides with our certain fear? Does it implode and become like a destructive force, like a black hole just sucking us in? Or does it explode and our faith overcomes and it creates a supernova? And the idea is that our faith is not just information or the person and work of Christ, but it also is how we trust in the Lord. So it's not just about theory. It's about how do we put it into practice. It's great if we know the actual concept or understand that through the power of the Holy Spirit, we understand that Jesus came to die on the cross for our sin. But it's another thing that when we have fear and it's just taking us and it's a gravitational force in our hearts that's just ripping us up and it's just driving us inward and it's causing such an implosion in our hearts that it takes us away and it begins to pull us away from faith rather than towards it. And so... That's what begins to happen. There are so many different fears that are happening out there. And as we understand, we have to grasp that. There are many different fears. One is the fear of water. You know, if you were younger and you don't want to jump in a pool, you're afraid you might drown, there's always that fear of water. Or you have the fear of darkness. I don't know about you, but uh, you might need to turn the light on when you go to sleep. Not me. I like to be as dark as dark can be. My daughter Rebecca and I are the same in that way. We like it dark, and then when Giuseppe comes down, he starts turning lights on. We're in the man cave, and I'm like, "Uh, shut those off, please. And me and Rebecca right there just enjoying the dark as we're watching TV. Now, I don't know, call me crazy, but that's who I am. But you might be the opposite. But the idea is that there could be a fear of darkness. But then it could be the fear of heights. You might be, you know, just any kind of height. Um, But you also have the fear of of flying. Um, There could be some of that in me, too, because I haven't been on a plane in 20 years. But lo and behold, there might be some of you who are just frequent flyers, and you're on there, and it's second nature, and you don't even think about it. When there's tribulation or anything, you know, just tribulation, I mean, you have tribulation. But when your tribulation is coming around and it's turbulent, you're just like, I don't know what to do. And, And during turbulence, I'm like, I'm shaking. And some will turn to me and say, that's just normal. And I recall of that. But the idea is that you could have a fear of that. Or bees. I'm allergic to bees. So when I see a bee, I freak um, because I'm afraid the bee's going to get me. If the bee gets me, then I could die. Um, and some of you might be afraid of spiders. Um, somebody might, some of you might be afraid of snakes. Um, I'm, you know, I get to be afraid of snakes that if I see a worm, I run. So it's the whole idea that anything that looks like a snake or any kind of form of a snake, I begin to get a little like I'm paralyzed. But even though all of these fears that I've mentioned, there's the fear of rejection that we don't think too often about that can cause frenzy in us. There can be the fear of losing control. If you're not in control, for all of us control freaks, we lose control, we lose our minds. We lose our temper. We're afraid of losing our temper because we know little things might get to us. It's something men often struggle with. Or you're just afraid that people will see the real you or the real me, and we just don't want that to happen. So we close up. We hide. We don't want to be transparent and vulnerable. So we're afraid, so we just kind of tighten up and make sure that we got it all together. We logically get through things, and we don't want anyone else to know we're struggling. You know, um, there is a suspension bridge 
in, um, in China. These, they call them the suspension glass bridges where people actually walk around mountains. They have bridges that they walk. And there's a specific one that's 872 feet where they have them walking around mountains or across mountains, mountainsides. And it's 870 feet long. And 872 feet is like likened to three football fields, six and a half feet wide. Now, the bottom, I, I, wanted to sh I could show you in a video, but the bottom is glass. The sides are glass with railings. And these people walk over these bridges. Now, some are very scared. They're holding on to each other. Others, again, just like when you're flying, you're just used to it. They're used to it. But what they do, the tourists do, and what they allow for it is part towards like, I think it's like three meters before you get to the other side. There is a cracking effect that ignites under their feet. And, it cre and it's like it's cracking. It looks like it's about to go. And so they do that to see how people react. And people are freaking out. They're jumping onto the rails. They're trying to hold onto the rails. They're like jumping and just like this while they're not touching the floor. But I'm thinking, well, if you're going to jump on the rail and it's all going to go down, you're all going down. So, I mean, I don't see how that's going to help, but it's the reaction of the fear. They see, they show in the video that all of a sudden they see the cracking and they just start to react and freak out. Now, some people laughed in the first service as I watched it, we were watching it, but it, it just, I, I laughed, but I don't even know if I'd go on that bridge. So, I wouldn't even gather myself to even walk across that. But the idea is that it, would, it caused that effect of fear. And then you have our Chesapeake Bay Bridge where there was another video of a woman, of a woman who was just petrified to drive over the bridge. It's 200 feet high. Um, you know, it's, a, it's just you don't see much. There's no side. Um, there's pull-offs. There's just two lanes, and you're going, and it's 4.3 miles across, and you're really, really high at one point. And there's actually a guy, a few guys or a few people that have a business where they drive people over for work, go over on the other side, and then they come back. So they actually make a business because people are fearful. And so in the video, the woman was even so petrified that she, the, the guy from, from this uh, TV show uh, was asking her questions. She's like, listen, um, I'm just having a hard time seeing the driver look back at you while he's driving on this bridge. He needs to focus on driving right now, so please don't ask me questions. I'm watching him to make sure he's focused. She's so paralyzed, she's expecting this man to be paralyzed as well. And here she was just on this bridge, so she was afraid. They even showed a guy who was a big, burly guy who drives trucks who just can't do it. And he had to go to get counseling over this fear of driving over the bridge, and he's still not over it. And he's afraid to drive on his own, so he gets this guy to drive him over every day. But again, this fear is so consuming. And it gets to a point where the fear of success could even come into a play. You ever think about it? Like we're afraid to be successful because we're afraid that it may turn to hopelessness in the situation. So the fear of anything could really overcome us. So what we're trying to do here is we're going to be talking about Elijah and the story in 1 Kings 19. And let me just give you a little bit of a background 
um, just, just making sure that we understand. But we're, we're going to talk about leaning into the whisper because we recognize that in 1 Kings 19 that Elijah was afraid, but he had to learn and hear from God. So let's just talk about that, a little bit of a backstory here. The story of Elijah is dealing with over 800 prophets, Baal prophets in the land of Israel. The king of Israel was Ahab at the time. His wife was Jezebel who was the daughter of Eth Baal, meaning Baal is alive, that's her name, and was the king of the Sidians. And they were Baal worshipers. And Ahab, who was easily impressionable, set up Baal altars in the temples all around Israel. So he set that up. And here, the word Baal means Lord, husband, or owner. And he was a predominant god in the Canaanite religion. But Baal was the storm god who was provided fertility among the land. So Baal worship infiltrated the land of Israel at the time of Judges. However, Ahab gave it proper approval by providing temples of worship. So his relationship with his father, although a bad king, was similar to David and Solomon. So in 1 Kings 17, we see that there was a drought that came for, uh, over Israel for three and a half years, and it was judgment upon the people for following false gods. So as we arrive at this point of the story, we understand that the Lord wants to use Elijah to accomplish this miraculous work through him. And so he sees this victory. Fire comes from heaven. The victory comes. 800 Baal worshipers and prophets were, were killed. And God has a victory, a great, enormous victory, a natural phenomenon. And, and, and Elijah gets to see it firsthand right there in the first row as he sees God at work and victorious. So he's like, okay, God, I know we got him now. We got Ahab. We got Jezebel. They're going to have to surrender. They're going to give in. But no, instead, what happens is she responds with more confidence and starts to make these comments with these futile threats toward him. So what became victorious now is leaning toward a potential defeat. What happened? What happened was when Elijah saw the response, he wasn't sure what was going to happen next. And see, the fear of the unknown starts to trickle in because we can't see the future. We don't know what's going to happen to Jezebel. We thought it was over. At least Elijah thought it was over. And he thought Ahab was going to finally give in. And here they were plotting a plan to ultimately kill him. So here's the, the, the question, or here's the statement. Leading into fear, leaning into fear instead of leaning into God leads us to be a couple of things here. One is that we're distracted by other voices. So when leaning into fear leads us to be distracted by other voices, we see in 1 Kings 19 that here Ahab, the story is quite clear that there is a voice that's coming. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, verse 1, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah. Some scholars believe that even Jezebel was afraid to face Elijah at that time. But she sent her messenger saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as a life of one of them by this time tomorrow. I mean, what you just displayed here through God in killing all my prophets, I will make sure that I will do the same to you. Now, this was like a godlike threat, 
I mean, who in the world does she think she is that she has the power to remove Elijah? Elijah's a prophet of God, chosen of God. And if he's chosen of God, and if God allows it, then it'll happen. But he was a threat. And here God wasn't going to allow it just yet. Because God is the sovereign God, the sovereign God who has the authority to remove life and to give it. And this is how we're going to believe that Jezebel was going to threaten Elijah. What happened to Elijah in that moment? He listened to a voice. How often do we listen to voices around us? If you have a spouse, you listen to their voice. You want to please them so much that whenever they're disappointed with you, then you just get so angry and frustrated that you didn't make them happy. And then you start blaming them instead of looking at yourself and saying, why are you so into wanting pleasing your spouse when really you got to be into pleasing God? And so we hear these voices of our children. We hear our voices of our boss. We hear our voices of our parents. We hear the voices all around that are distracted. We hear the news telling us the so-called truth. And then fear starts to paralyze us. Did you hear what so-and-so said? I think it's going to happen. How do you know? Because now the fear of the unknown happens. So you've got all these voices that are distracting us. And when we are led by fear, when we are leaning into fear, that just feeds fear. It's a monster that needs to be fed. And fear comes when it's the unknown. Do you know that what we worry and fear about, 85, 90% of it doesn't even happen? So any of you that watch horror movies or if you watch thrillers, don't think that if you go back to bed, it's going to happen to you because more than likely it's not. But if that's too much for you and you're fearful of that, then stop watching the movies. I mean, I don't know what to tell you, but the idea is that fear has to have its way. And here it was having its way on Elijah. Number two, leaning into fear leads us to be defeated by our own voice, our own voice. Look at verse three. Then he was afraid. Now, let me stop here a second. In the Hebrew, you have potentially two words there. The consonants are similar in two words, to see and to fear. But when you're looking at it in the Hebrew, a verb is not a, a letter. It's little dots. You have to determine, are they like a semicolon or a colon, or is it a line with a dot under it? We'll determine if it's an A, an E, an I. You have to know that when you're reading Hebrew. By the way, when you're reading Hebrew, right to left. So when you're reading it and you're studying, you're saying, wow, the consonants are the same for to see and to fear. And scholars believe that really it could be the word to see because what he saw and understood, it then led him to be fearful. And what he saw or what he perceived or what he understood from the voice of Jezebel is that his life was on the line. He was about to get killed. So he was afraid and he was paralyzed with fear and didn't know what to do. So he was a man who saw victory now comes to a potential defeat. And he was defeated because he started saying it to himself. Oh, no, oh, no, oh, no, she's going to get me. Oh, I heard it. And he hears the voice. He hears the voice. You know, you hear that voice. Husband, you hear your wife's voice. And, oh, boy, she finds out I did this. She's going to kill me. Or if the wife goes, oh, if he gets finding out that I did this, he's going to yell and scream. I better not do that. Yes, it does happen in marriages, by the way, in case you're out there wondering what's he talking about. It does happen in marriages. But to think, guys, I mean, it does it or not? Can I get an Amen. Yeah, okay. So the idea is that we hear voices, and we're not sure, but we feel defeated. And he was, all of a sudden, a confident person turns to absolute defeat. A courageous person turns to absolute cowardice. Why? Because he expected a different result. 
He expected Ahab and Jezebel to surrender. But it fueled their fire. Has that ever happened to you when you want a certain expected result and it doesn't happen and you get frustrated over it and then you're afraid what's going to happen next? It happens often in our lives. See, that's what she was thinking. So Elijah was tired, which caused him to attempt to manufacture his own faith and his strength and try to expect the unrealistic expectation. I love what a commentary said this. He said, the great prophet's flight betrayed a notable spiritual flaw as God's subsequent dealing with Elijah displays. His his God-given successes has fostered an inordinate pride, which had made him to take his own importance too seriously. Moreover, Elijah had come to bask in the glow of the spectacular. He may have fully expected that because of what God or what he had been accomplished at Mount Carmel, Jezebel would capitulate and pagan worship would come to an end in Israel, although his, because of his influence, all through his influence. So what became is, I can't do this, or this person is smarter than me, or God can't use me, or look at me, uh, then I'm not pretty enough. If you're a woman, you say, I'm not pretty enough. All those are voices that can defeat us, which creates fear. Number three, leaning into fear leads us to be devoured by victimization. Victimization. In verse four, it's just right clear here. It says, but he himself went on a day's journey to the wilderness and came and sat under a broom tree, which was a shrub. And he asked that he might die, saying, is it enough now? Oh, Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And so he wanted to ultimately commit suicide. He was exhausted. And when we're exhausted and we're, we're not focused, we're overwhelmed we lose confidence. And when we lose confidence, we lose confidence in ourselves and God and our hope in Christ. We lose our focus on the, and we put our focus totally on the situation. We get enamored and focused. In fact, it's kind of like that collide effect. The weight of the mass and, and the fear so overwhelms us that at the core of our being, we start to implode. And what happens is in our core, we start to just get so, so heavy in our minds and our hearts, even affects physically our stomachs. And it begins to affect our entire core and our being saying, I can't do this anymore. And you implode. I implode. So what people, are, when we, what people say about us, then it matters. Our insecurities, we start to hear that. The pressure to do uh, for it ourselves. Ultimately, depression sets in. Hopelessness begins, which leads to potential suicidal thoughts. See, suicide is not an option. It wasn't an option for the Israelites. It's not an option for us as believers in Christ. But suicidal thoughts could come upon God's people. In the Old Testament, Job, we saw that he had suicidal thoughts. Moses had suicidal thoughts. Jeremiah had suicidal thoughts. See, and what happens is that we implode because we hold on to things that we shouldn't. We're not vulnerable. We're not transparent. We're afraid that if we are, that people will see the real us, so we're afraid, so we cover up. I think sometimes the Christians are the most closed up people because they're afraid. They think God, they th- we think God is expecting perfection from us when he's not. He's not expecting perfection from us. He wants intimate relationship. He wants us to open up. He wants us to have interaction with him. He wants us to bear our fears and our struggles and our difficulties. 
He wants us to realize that we can't do it without him. But we mostly cover it up. That's why in the midst of all of this, what did, did he really need? What did Elijah really need? Well, this is what I think he really needed. Amid our fear, God always offers comfort. And he needed this comfort. He really needed it. And here's what it says in 1 Kings 19, 5 through 8. It says that he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. Now, I like that kind of angel because you need to eat. And it's good to eat because you need strength. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones in a jar of water. And I thought I could use some more than that, but that was enough for Elijah. And he ate and he drank and he laid down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time. Wow, that's good. And he touched him and said, arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he says in verse 8, and he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength that food 40 days and 40 nights to Oreb, the mount of God. Now, here's a couple of things. One is that this is parallel to Moses. Moses in Exodus had before he went into his next phase in Exodus 34 28 he had to spend 40 days and 40 nights prior to going to his next phase and here God was setting him up because he had a 200 mile journey to the Mount of Oreb which is the Mount of Sinai and here he had 200 miles to go so this next phase God had to give him a time of rest of comfort from his struggle from his exhaustions from his burnout he was burned out he was exhausted from all the victories, but then also the defeats. And here he sees that in the midst of it, he had to be comforted. And so understandably so, it had to work out in that way where God was comforting him through this time. But then as he moves on, he gets to this mountain. There was a cave that he came to. And I don't know about you, but when Sunday's coming, as I told you last week, first thing I do is I detox. And I told you guys, I go downstairs, and I just hang out. My wife doesn't like it too much, but I go hang out. I look for a, ba a football game or a, ba or, or a baseball game, and I'm just like, hey, can I get something to eat? And it's like, oh, boy, he's in one of those moods again. And I just lay back in my recliner chair, and I need to detox. I need to rest. I need to clear my mind because it's been a busy three days of preparing for a sermon. But here's the thing, though. I love the cave because if I'm in the cave and the Lord's calling on me, I don't even have time for that. Like, Lord, you're calling on me now. I'm kicking back in my recliner. I got my drink. I'm eating my lunch. You really want me now? And you know that if God calls on you, you have to go. But here he was in a cave. He was resting. And the Lord, the word of the Lord came. Now, if you're exhausted and you're overwhelmed and you can't get up, the last thing you want to do is step up when God calls on you. But you do it out of obedience. And then he asks him a question. What are you doing here? Well, okay, Lord, what am I doing here? Well, here's what, what am I doing? Well, Lord, I mean, you, you know what I'm doing. You're God and sovereign and you're in control. What do you mean, what am I doing? You know why I'm here. But here God was trying to get his attention because he responds. And as you look at verse 10, 10 and 14 come together really well. He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken their covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I alone, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So there's a tinge of arrogance, but the tinge of arrogance in there is really propagated from fear. It begins with fear. 
because he's afraid he's all alone now. He wasn't alone when he saw 800 Baal prophets being killed. But now all of a sudden, now that Jezebel responds and reacts, he hears, he flees, everyone else is dead but him. Now he feels alone. And now he tries to stand up saying, but me, Lord, I'm the only one. I was the one who was here. There's that tinge of arrogance. He's saying, I didn't forsake you, Lord. I stood my ground. So did the Lord say to him, hey, you know what? Let me, let me give you a party and celebrate that you stood with me. No, he had to tell him and show him some. Here comes a lesson that's coming. Because in verse 11, we see this. That it says, that he goes on and he, and he says, and he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. So go out there. Stand on. I'm going to show you something. And behold, the Lord passed by, similar to Moses, he passed by. And a great strong wind tore, to, tore the mountains and broke into pieces the rocks before the Lord. This wasn't just any kind of windstorm. This was one that ripped rocks up. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. Now, he, he usually is in the phenomenon. And after the earthquake of fire, which he, he just saw fire come from heaven to kill and to, to destroy all these Baal prophets. And he says, but the Lord was not in the fire. Well, Lord, where are you? And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. That's where he found the Lord. Sometimes what happens is we see phenomenal things that happen where God takes us out and he moves us in different directions and he's doing a work in our lives, but God's just at times when he's just sitting there and giving us a, just a small still voice, trying to get our attention. And that collide happens, our faith collides with fear because God is feeding us with the faith of who he is and what he wants to do in our lives. And as he does that, he has that small little still whisper. It's just enough for us to be challenged, realizing that it's not always about the phenomena. I love what a the commentary said, what Elijah needed to learn, God would soon show him. God does not always move in the realm of the extraordinary. To live always seeking one high experience after another is to have a misdirected zeal. The majority of life service is in a quiet, routine, humble obedience in God, to God's will. And that's what it means. But here's the thing. It doesn't mean that we're to be quiet, mind our business, never talk about Jesus, never tell anyone about Jesus, never challenge anyone, never encourage anyone to have courage in the Lord. What it means is that if we stay focused on the Lord, spend time with him in his presence, love on him and enjoy him, be quiet and obey him, that's when God is working. And then he leads us. But as we lean in the whisper, he leads us to a place where he wants us to be. And see, that's where he's calling each one of us. He's, and see, that's where it's important. In verse 13, he says, when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. He wrapped himself in this cloak because he couldn't see God. He couldn't because he, it was a sign of humility, just a, a sign of conviction, saying, God, you're the one who needs to lead me, not me. I am fearful right now, and God, I can't let my fear lead me any longer. Oh, God, I'll lean into your whisper and let you lead me now. I humble myself before you. And it's that show and sign of confession and conviction. So leaning into this whisper, leaning into God's 
whisper leads to a conviction of sin. That's what it does when that sign of surrendering and dying and saying, God, it's the Holy Spirit drawing us to show us that we cannot do this in our own strength, that we're not able to handle our own fears, that we can't do this logically, that we have to surrender to God. So when he comes, God comes and he convicts us. It's an important thing because like Jesus said in John 16, 8, he said, and when he comes, the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And we, even as he convicts the world, we too who are sinners saved by grace, he's convicting us. And as he's convicting us, he's convicting us, which the word means to bring a person to a point of recognizing wrongdoing. And recognizing that you and I are sinners. Righteousness means according to Jesus Christ is righteous, that he's objective truth. And then when we compare ourselves to God, there's a conviction. It's easy when we compare ourselves to everyone else around us. There is no conviction because we always find our ways being better than the next person. Whether we compare ourselves in one manner or another, we're always better. Whether you're in a marriage relationship or you're at work or with your boss or with your kids, we always feel like we're better than the next person. There's no conviction. It's always that sense of we have to show that we're better than the next person. But with God, there's a conviction because righteousness is the truth. And when we're confronted with the righteousness of Christ, it exposes our self-righteousness. And judgment the same. Because where there's judgment, it's a legal process of judgment, meaning God dealt with sin. He dealt with it through his son. He dealt with it through the resurrection. He overcame sin, death, Satan. It's a legal matter. It's handled. So this way, you and I can't rationalize out of it. When we get caught or something's going on in our fear, we can't sit there and go, oh, Lord, you know, the reason why I did that is because of A, B, C, and the Lord's like, okay, let me hear it out again. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's still sin, and um, I, my son died for it for you. So you don't have to rationalize it. But Lord, really, it sounds like a kid, but mom, dad, I really did this. Can we just admit it that you just need to confess? I mean, there's a conviction here. You did the wrong thing. Just confess and let's move on. But we spend so much time doing that instead of just confessing the sin and recognizing that's all God desires for us. In fact, when we lean into God's whisper, it leads us to confession. Confession of who we are and who he is in our lives. Who are we? We're sinners saved by grace. I mean, the, the Bible's clear. We don't have to rationalize sin anymore. We don't have to cover it up. We don't have to pretend like it's not there and saying, oh, no, 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 not that, Lord. Don't look at that. God's saying, no, no, come on, let's confess it. I want to work in your life. I want to just give you a small, still voice so I can minister to you and love you so we can have intimacy and we can have this interaction so you can grow closer to me and abide in me. But we don't have to. See, our fear is that if God sees us for who we are, he won't love us. But God sees all things. And so here's when our faith collides with our fear, an explosion, a supernova happens when we confess. A supernova happens when we are relieved of the sin that we're living in because the Bible makes a promise. God makes a promise. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just. Not us, but he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the beauty of it. God then cleanses us from unrighteousness. We don't have to put up a front with God. We don't have to hide. We don't have to be afraid in front of God. We can be transparent and vulnerable and expose ourselves because when we do, then we'll expose ourselves in front of others as well. 
And then we'll confess, as First John would say, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. That's when we find that we abide and draw close to him. So it's important that when we lean on the whisper, we do that. So when faith collides with fear, change occurs according to God's plan, not ours. So when we're led by the whisper of God, that's why we need to lean in that whisper because when we were leaning and lead, being led by the whisper of God, God is doing that work. He's convicting of, of sin through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then we don't lose that relationship with him. We have that abiding relationship that keeps us strong in faith and helps us to draw close to him. The question is this, how often are you spending time with the Lord? How often are you surrendering in prayer and getting in his presence? How often are you confessing sin? How often are you dealing with the fear? Because if you allow your fear to collide with your faith in Christ, I believe a supernova will happen. And when it does, you have a testimony. And when you have a testimony, you get to share it. And then you have the courage to confess to everyone who Jesus Christ really is in your life because now he's, you're experiencing him, you're encountering him. One of the things we did on Thursday night is we were trying with all of our hearts, surrender to God to encounter Christ. And we, we had a good start. But we want to start to do this potentially every month if we can do that, to spend time as a corporate worship of encountering God together experiencing him by confessing sin, admitting our fears and our worries and our concerns and allowing the Holy Spirit to work in our lives so that our, lie, our faith is fresh and new so we could share it with others. Are you feeding yourself afresh and anew each day? Are you being able to say, God, I want my fear to collide with my faith? That's what it's going to take. Because here, this is what happened. And, and if you look with me in 1 Kings, I just want to read verse 14, similar to verse 10. But if, if, you, if you see and understand that he, he said it again. He said the same exact words. And when he did, it was like, wow. He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord and the God of hosts or the people of Israel forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I alone only am left and they seek my life to take it away. See, he was trying again, say, God, see, I'm the only one. I'm the only one left. And what does the Lord do? The Lord just says, go and return your way. <laughs> Meaning, stop. Stop, Elijah. Stop holding on to your fear. I've given you my whisper. You don't have to remind me of what just happened. Now go do what I've called you to do. Obey me. And God gives him this threefold ministry. Really simple. To anoint the king over Syria. To anoint the king over Israel. And to anoint Elisha. And anoint this prophet. Because guess what? God said, I didn't have you to remove Baal worship in Israel. I didn't call you to that. I know you wanted me to, but I didn't. See, I just wanted you to experience me in my presence. I wanted your fear to collide with, my, with your faith and be able to experience that because Baal worship is not going to end yet. It didn't end till after these three people actually died. In 2 Kings chapter 13, verse 25, Baal worship ends. It's removed from Israel. But what God did was he said, 
I just want you to obey me, follow me, follow my whisper and lean on my whisper. I will lead you. Don't get caught up in the situation. Don't get caught up in what you're supposed to do for me. Only get caught up in my voice. Get caught up in my presence. Get caught up in reading my word and spending time with me and abiding in me. Nothing more than that. Don't get caught up in what you're doing for me. Don't look in how you're performing for God. Look at how you can get to know God. And see, God was telling this, and his faith grew. It grew because now God gave it and handed the baton off to Elisha. And this happened so that Elisha the prophet could recognize that God could overcome his fear. How about us? How often do we fall into this trap? How often do we fall into this fear tactic we hear these voices, we're distracted by other voices, we're distracted by our own voice, and then we're just, we're just victimized by saying, poor me. When will we realize that God is saying, I just want you to hear me in the small, still voice? Remember, when you're leaning over to hear someone whispering, you got to get closer to them. God just wants you to get closer to him. So take a courageous step. We all need to do that. We need to take our fear and present it before the Lord and let him create a supernova in us. Let the collide happen. Let God be glorified. Let your new star shine so bright for the kingdom of God. I wanted to give you just a moment, whether you're out there in Facebook Live or here in the room, just for a moment. I want you to close your eyes and just bow your heads. I'm going to ask you a question. What is that this, the explicit, just a specific fear that you know that's in your life? One that just paralyzes you. You know it. I want you to name it right now to yourself. And then I want you to take this moment, just a couple of seconds here, and say, God, please help me to take my fear and let it collide with your ultimate faith, the content of faith, my faith in you. And let this be a supernova, however you want it to be. I just want you to pray that prayer real quick. Today, Lord, we pray whatever that fear is let it collide with our faith and let our faith overcome it please let it be a supernova experience and let us Lord God to experience your grace and your mercy and your love help us to lean over get close to you and hear your whisper in Jesus name amen